Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you on this day, and Lord, we have dedicated this time to your worship. Lord, we ask that you would give us a heart and an understanding of what true worship is, that you would allow us to grapple with the greatness and goodness of God this morning, and Lord, that we may come away more humble than when we began and yet with a deeper faith and belief in that God who is so great and so good. We ask you to bless each part of this service and to be honored and glorified in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please remember, if you would, and turn to Psalm 11. And uh, I'm going to kind of use that as a launching pad this morning. got a very encouraging uh, title for this morning's message, Without Hope. But I hope that uh, it will be uh, not as the title includes, but uh, I will tell you that uh, there has been times in all of our lives where we have felt that way. And the Bible is the only answer. And this psalm here, Psalm 11, is one of those places where David is feeling a lack of hope. In fact, not only is uh, not necessarily so much David, but all those around him. And let's just read the the verse here. In verse 1 it says, In the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For lo, the wicked bend their bow, and they make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked in him that loveth violent his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. It is amazing all of the conjecture that men add to the commentaries as they try to explain Uh, The Bible, uh, I was reading one and it said that uh, David wrote this psalm in fear of Absalom and uh, and how that he knew that the uh, that the um, that he was working behind the scenes and none of that's true. David didn't know what Absalom was doing until the word went through the land that Absalom reigns in Hebron. And he said, if we don't get out of Jerusalem. He'll attack the city and kill every living person in it. Uh, David did not flee from Absalom for fear. It was love and, and respect for the city and the people, the innocent people which were living in that city. Somebody said that uh, this was written by David when he was facing Goliath in the valley of Elah. And, and how that, uh, they told him to run away. And, but David wasn't running anywhere. But let me ask you a question. How many times in your life have you felt like it's just time to throw up the white flag and run away for a little while? 
Has anybody ever felt like that? I see some heads going up and down. You know, it doesn't take a lot to look around us. And verse 3 is just one of those verses. I, I don't know about you, but there are just some verses that just jump off the page at you. And that's one of the ones that has jumped off the page. In fact, I checked some old sermons that I had actually preached on, on that verse. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, the answer, that question is not answered in this song. Number one, uh, we'll get ahead of ourselves a little bit. It's not answered because the foundations cannot be destroyed. Uh, it's not answered on the other part because there is no answer to that question. If the foundations are actually destroyed, there is absolutely nothing for you and I as believers in God left to do. Because if there's no foundation, there's nothing left. You know, buildings, we've done a lot of work in this building. And I have a lot of work to do yet. We'll be talking about that at our business meeting again, as we always do. Uh, future work on the building. I, I was looking through the folder and I went back to 2002 and some of the old years and there was a list of things that needed to be fixed in the building. You know what? It's not unlike the list of things that needs to be fixed today. Uh, that's, but, you know, one thing this building does have is incredible foundations. Uh, it, it, this building was built in 1935. Normally, in those days and times, what you did for a foundation was you dug a hole and you tamped it down by hand and you piled rocks and mortar and that was your foundation. Most of the houses here have what is called a rubble foundation. Does that sound good? <laughs> well, it, it's, it's holding up all the houses in Astoria, I mean, since the 20s. Uh, but we have a poured concrete foundation. It's almost 15 inches thick and comes out of the ground all the way up to that ridge there you see in the side yard there. I mean, that was rocket science in 1935. And uh, they, they built this building well. Uh, but if something happened to those foundations, if they, those walls begin to crack and crumble, uh, it's time to get out of the building, knock it down, and start over again. And sometimes, I, I just want to chase a few rabbits here in our introduction and try not to take too much time to get us thinking. Sometimes we think that there are foundations that can't be destroyed. But I, I want to tell you, there's only one set of foundations that cannot be destroyed. We, we are watching the destruction of the foundations of this nation. We're, we're watching it. Uh, we have a governor that gave in his speech that if you are not for murdering unborn children in the womb of their own mother, if you're not for sodomite marriage that you have no right nor reason to run for political office in New York State. Move to another state, he said. He said that in a speech. I only heard part of the quote. 
And it said, if you believe these things, move out. And I'm going, hey, Governor, we're not moving. But uh, he was talking about running for political office, so we want to put it in context. And in the Como administration, there is no room for anyone who believes in righteousness and holiness and the goodness of God. He's made that very clear. And we wonder why New York State is in trouble. You know, we have to put up with all that regulation. And, you know, sometimes in my heart I say, Oh, Lord, why, why can't you just judge these people for all of their wickedness and all of their intervention and all of their hindrance of just doing things right? And then I remembered, if God judges them, we, we're going to pay for it too. Uh, it's a scary world in which we live. But let me tell you something. The foundations aren't completely gone. But when they are, we're, we're not going to rebuild this country any more than the great Indian nations that live for here are going to ever rebuild theirs. Any more than the Grecian Empire or the Roman Empire. Well, there's going to be a rebuilt Roman Empire. Revelation talks about that. But that's going to be the work of the Antichrist. Let, let me tell you something. If the foundations are destroyed... There's nothing left to do. But I want us to read verse 4 because David says, The Lord is in His holy temple. He said, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? But the Lord is in His temple. Let me tell you something. God is still alive. God is still sitting upon the throne of the universe... And he is still receiving worship from those things which he created. A little while back, I got a, uh, one of those online books about the Hubble uh, telescope. And all of the pictures that it has taken. And it claims to have taken pictures back to the beginning of time. Thirteen. Point five billion years, uh, light years actually, across the universe. And they are saying this is, see, it's taken that much time for that light to reach us. Don't you think that's a pretty huge uh, postulate or unprovable statement to base everything on? I mean, when God said, let there be light... What if he had let all that light travel all the distance in that moment of time of creation and we're looking, thinking we're looking back in time 13.5 billion years and we're only looking back in time about 6,000 years. Now, I love how God confuses those people who don't want to believe in him. But you look at what pictures we have taken and I go back to the statement that I've made many times before. Who else but God could waste this entire universe on one little planet and put life on it? I mean, He is in His temple. But not only is He in His temple, the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. You know what 
the Lord is watching. It says his eyelids try the children of men. Now that's an interesting picture there, but what what David is doing is is just letting us think. Now, uh, uh, see that God really is putting forth some effort. How many of you have ever had a really difficult, oh, let's say math problem you were trying to think through? What's the first thing you do? You look at it, you get all that, and then you close your eyes and you really think about it. David is trying to paint a picture that you and I can relate to. Saying that God is not just looking at things like we look at things. He is putting all of his resources and God does not think about things he knows. He is putting all of his knowledge into everything, into everything that we do, into evaluating how we are living. Now, that ought to be a fairly terrifying thought. Amen? But it ought to be an incredibly comforting thought when we hear speeches from our governor like we had last week. It it ought to be an incredibly encouraging thing when we see what our national government is doing and how that they are eroding everything that makes the individual worth anything. God is still paying attention. And it says, the Lord trieth the righteous. Now, it's interesting that the psalmist, as he is talking about what God is doing, he says he is looking, he is beholding, his eyelids try the children of men. If we would try to put it in words that we understand... God is in deep contemplative thought about every deed that we do. But God doesn't think the way we do, praise God. But He wants us to understand that this is not a light thing. But the first thing God does is He tries the righteous. They said judgment must begin where? At the house of God. You know, God's more interested in what's going on in this church this morning than He is on what's going on on Wall Street and what's going on in D.C. and what's going on in in Tokyo and, and all of the centers of the world. God is really interested in what's going on because the righteous are assembled to worship His name. He's interested. He wants to receive worship. That's what the temple is all about. That's why God sits upon His throne, because He is showing Himself as the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, to anyone who will choose to receive Him as such. And He wants to receive our worship. That's why we're here today. Amen? But He's also going to judge the wicked. And read the rest of the psalm. He's not going to leave them unpunished, but let me tell you something. If we're not doing what's right here, God's going to be knocking at our door and saying, hey, there's some things that need to be changed. You know, that's why we have an invitation at the end of every service. 
Because there's not a one of us that doesn't come to this auditorium on Sunday morning that does not need the Holy Spirit of God knocking on our door and saying, there are some things that need to be worked on. And and this is not an erythral thing that, hey, you know, some of these years down the road as you grow and mature, there's some things that need to be worked on this week, starting tomorrow, starting this afternoon. There are some things that need to be addressed. And that's why we have an altar call. So you can come and you can admit those things to God and start to work on the things that God wants you to start to work on. Because He is in His holy temple. He is watching. And those foundations shall never be shaken, let alone destroyed. That's what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, why do you tell me to flee away? Why do you tell me to, to, to uh, run away from, from this truth and try to hide myself? You know, uh, our, our soldiers have found this out. It has been very few times in history that American soldiers have been defeated on an open field of battle. Very few times. But as Vietnam and several other conflicts have proven, look what it says. In verse 2 it says, The wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. It's, It's hard to deal with the assassins. It's hard to deal with those people who cover their warfare in deceit and will not even put on a uniform and fight. And he says, David said, listen, that's what I'm fighting against. And all my counselors are telling me there's only one way to protect yourself, David. That's run away. That's hide yourself. You cannot shield yourself from the assassins. Humanly speaking, that's incredibly true. And he says, if the foundations be destroyed, if all of the rules are gone, what are you going to do? And he says, here's what I'm going to do. The Lord is still in his temple. He's still watching. He is thinking and putting forth his effort upon what men are doing. And he is going to judge the righteous and the wicked. Amen? Now, let's go back to where we started. How many times have, has it been in your life where you just kind of felt like, I just can't go on? Uh, it's, it's just time to find a bunker somewhere and hunker down for a little bit. Uh, it's time to retreat. And I want you to turn with me to John chapter 16. Because there are going to be times like that in our life where we look around and it would seem to make the most sense. It would seem that that hope is gone, that there is just really nothing good going to happen out of this situation. And we could go to many passages in Scripture. I only want to look at three or four this morning. But our first one is in John chapter 16, and we're going to start in verse 19. Now, Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him and said unto them, Do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said a little while 
and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, ye shall see me. Verse 20, Verily I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. And ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. Now, Jesus was speaking about his coming death on the cross and his resurrection. Amen. But put yourself in the place of the disciples as they saw their Lord and Savior bound in the Garden of Gethsemane and dragged by the temple. Uh, Larry, Moe, and Curly, uh, security guards down to uh, be arrested and, and tried and mocked. And, of course, John was there and Peter heard some of the things, the horrific things that went on as these men arrayed in gorgeous robes with lives that had a testimony of righteousness, slapping and spitting and cursing the Lord Jesus Christ. How much hope would you have right then? Hello? Uh, don't you think they were pretty discouraged? Thought it was all over? Finally, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were able to procure the body. The disciples were powerless to do anything. And then a Roman guard came down to stand watch over the tomb. It was all over. There was nothing to do but cry. But Jesus had told them, he says, your sorrow is going to be turned into joy. Verse 22, and ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart shall rejoice and your joy no man taketh from you. But look at verse 31 if you would. Jesus answered them, do ye now believe? Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. He had started this passage in the last verses of chapter 13 by telling Peter, the most stalwart and, and, and really the leader of the twelve apostles, that you're going to deny me three times. You're going to, even, you're going to take my name and say you never knew me. Now, Peter couldn't comprehend that in his mind. Do you think any of the other disciples got the message? You think they were all looking at Peter when he was swinging his sword in the garden and saying, yeah, he's going to deny it. No, they were looking at him and saying, boy, I wish I was brave like that. And yet, before that night was out, utter hopelessness and failure was upon the hearts and lives of every one of the disciples. Yet Sunday morning, the stone rolled away from the tomb. Amen? You see, even though it seemed that they were without hope, the Lord was still on His throne. He was still beholding the works of men. I wonder if God was laughing at the Pharisees as they went in before Pilate and begged a Roman guard to seal the tomb. I mean, when you look at the story, that was fairly ridiculous. 
And if these Pharisees, these priests, these people who were in charge of worshiping God in the na- for the nation of Israel, for the Jewish people, had actually opened their eyes, what they were saying was that the power of Rome is greater than the power that Jesus claimed to have as God the Son. Boy, that's pretty foolish now, isn't it? But they couldn't see it because they'd already chosen the portion of the wicked. But you know what? The disciples couldn't see either because their faith in God had to be built. And so they went through this night, three nights of hopelessness. And on the third day, they saw the risen Lord. And you know what? Years ago, a fellow went through and he was a judge in his regular life. And he said, when I retire from the bench and have some time, he says, my, my life's work will then be to debunk the Bible and disprove all of this thing that was written once and for all. He said, I know the laws of evidence He said, I've spent my entire life sifting evidence and proving what is right and what is wrong. How many have a wild idea of what happened to that judge? He got saved. He couldn't refute the words of God. Amen? I want you to turn with me to another passage. There was problems in the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. They had all kinds of people running around trying to teach and, and, and uh, explain that they were right and that, that uh, there was problems with Paul. And You know, pride is a terrible, terrible thing, especially when it gets into the life of people who call themselves teachers and preachers. If you've ever tuned in uh, the religious broadcast, I mean... I mean, sometimes those those guys, I mean, I remember one, uh, it started out with this view of the stars, and it said, when I was a little boy, Jesus appeared to me and told me that all these stars were the souls that I would win for him. Isn't that, does anybody see just a slight bit of arrogance in that statement? I'm being sarcastic. I mean... Good night. Who do you think you are? Somebody very important. At least important enough for you to send all your money to to keep the television program going. Eh? Huh? I mean, the simple truth of the matter is when people get full of themselves, they have to reject the doctrines of the Scripture. And it got to that point to where they were even arguing about the resurrection of Christ. And Paul is, is trying to teach him. Look at verse um, 13 of chapter 15. We're going to read a few verses here just to see how serious the situation had become. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, verse 14, then is our preaching vain and, our, and your faith is also vain. 
Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God, that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Does that sound like a hopeless situation, a hopeless summary? I mean, Paul says, listen, if Christ is not raised from the dead, and yet there are people who call themselves preachers that stand up and say, you know, the resurrection is a nice story, but it's really not that important to my faith. I've read that in books. I've heard that. So, what, what is your faith in? I'll tell you what it's in. It's in the goodness of man. And uh, if that's where your faith is today, I, I just challenge you, get the newspaper. Uh, today's newspaper ought to have a b enough bad news in it to ruin your faith in the goodness of mankind. Amen? Uh, just tune into the radio for the top of the hour, bottom of the hour news brief, and, and you'll find out enough wicked things to... Destroy your faith in the goodness of man. If you continue that faith in the goodness of man, it just shows you that you, you have no understanding of reality and that you have rejected the goodness of God because you don't want to be bothered with your own problems. Now, Paul is addressing this. There were people in the church teaching that the resurrection was over, that it was all done, that Christ really never was raised from the dead. And Paul says, listen, if this is the case, we are of all men most miserable. But I want you to read the next verse. Verse 20 says, but now is Christ risen from the dead. You notice he doesn't say, but Christ was raised from the dead. He said, but now is Christ risen from the dead. Because when Christ rose again, he is never going to die again. He is eternally sitting at the right hand of that throne in heaven. What's he doing? He's praying for us. You know... There have been so many assaults on doctrines of the Bible over the years. And there are people who have taken it upon themselves. My ministry is apologetics. I'm going to refute the world and their false beliefs and convince them that the Bible is true. Uh, could I challenge you that's not possible? The world has always disbelieved the truth of God and always will disbelieve the truth of God. And if someone in the world stops disbelieving the truth of God and accepts it, they join our side. Don't waste your time trying to convince them. Give them the gospel. If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, what was the message of Moses and the prophets? I could put it in just one sentence. You have sinned. 
Is that the message of Moses and the prophets? I mean, uh, uh, not a mistake. Sometimes I say it was, and, and it was the, the way I did it. On Thursday nights many years ago, we went through the minor prophets, starting with Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, right one after the other. I'm not going to do that again. Everybody was so... De- not another one, Pastor! I mean, it was so depressing. Because the message was all the same. You have done wickedly. Turn back to God. But if you won't listen to that message, even though I could convince you mathematically that it is impossible for a monkey to become a man, and and that's not hard to do, that you're still not going to believe. Because the issue is not logic. The issue is not sense. The issue is who God is. You see, if you believe in the God of the Bible, the resurrection is not a very difficult thing for you to grapple with. In fact, it's an essential part of our faith in God. Because he is the God of life and the God of death. He is the God of all. We do not need many gods in our pantheon as some ancient cultures and even modern cultures have tried to put forth. We only need one. He controls everything. But now is Christ risen from the dead. And become the first fruits of them that slept. Now you know what that first fruit means? Anytime I read that, I'm sorry, I go back to the peach trees in my yard as a kid. Getting that first ripe peach. I mean, it was a contest between me and my brothers. Every once in a while, Dad got involved, but he was at work all day, so we always had the junk. Trying to get that first peach. I mean, we'd watch them as they would start turning pink and... I mean, go up there and start pinching them. They were still hard, and then all of a sudden they started softening up. Ooh. But the thing I like about the first fruits is there's more to come. Amen? I mean, that first peach is gone. Everything but the pit in just a matter of seconds. But my mom would put up 100 to 120 quarts of peaches every year besides what we ate. Off three trees. It was cool. I loved it. Some of the greatest memories I have is a day like today when it's freezing cold and snow on the ground. Mom, can I get a jar of peaches? Yeah. You need to loosen the lid, and of course, home canned stuff, you want to hear the pop when you pull the lid. If you don't, throw it away. But you'd hear that, and a bowl full of summer came out. You know what? First fruits. Jesus is the first fruit. They've attacked the foundation of the Word of God. And by the way, You cannot choose a publicly accredited seminary in the United States that believes the King James Bible is the Word of God today. You can't find it anywhere. 
Not among the Southern Baptists, even as conservative as they claim to be, there is not one publicly accredited university that believes this book is the inerrant Word of God in the English language. Not one. I'm talking about seminaries, schools that are training preachers. You think the foundations might have been destroyed in the minds of some people? You know what? You can't find one of those public, publicly accredited universities that believe that the only program for Jesus Christ today on planet Earth is His local church. I'm telling you, the, the college I went to no longer believes those things. It's a tragic day. And we can look at all of that and get discouraged. And look at churches who say, listen, the purpose of the church is to serve the believer. That is the lie of Mr. Warren and his book. The church isn't here to serve you. I remember all the way through Bible college, the homiletics professor you got to deal with Oscar Pusetter. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? As you prepare your sermons, you got to realize you're preaching to people and you've got to preach to people that want something. I would hope in 21 years plus being here that you're here not because you want something, but because you want to learn something from God. There's a big difference, my friend. And as we look at churches and groups of people and organizations and Bible colleges and society as a whole that have rejected the gospel and the true doctrines of Jesus Christ. I want you to understand something. Christ, is, God is still upon His throne. He's watching. He's judging. He's thinking about what's going on here. He is interested in the righteous and He is going to judge the unrighteous. He may ask us to go through some dark waters as He did the disciples when all hope was gone as they saw that body laid in a tomb. But Sunday morning He came out. Amen. But now is Christ risen from the dead ever to live? And the Bible says in verse 22 of this same passage, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits afterward. They that are Christ at His coming. I want you to turn with me. Second Peter chapter 3. We've got to hurry this morning. Second Peter chapter 3. If you get to the Johns, you've gone too far. If you're in Timothy, just a little further. Hebrews. Second Peter chapter 3. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Verse 3, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they... Willingly are ignorant of that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that was then, the, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now 
By the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I'll tell you, I wish I could walk each and every day in the light of His soon return. I have to be honest, I get distracted. I get distracted by all kinds of things. I don't know about you. Uh, Tonight is our annual business meeting. I've been greatly distracted this week with facts and figures and pieces of paper and all of that. But it's important that we do those things because we have to have a good testimony and prove that we're doing things right and honest. But you know... The world despises the doctrine of the second coming. But what is so amazing to me is that I believe nine people following a man named Applewaite several years ago put plastic bags over their heads and suffocated themselves with purple handkerchiefs so that they could be transported to the spaceship that was hovering around the earth, which their leader, uh, Applewaite, who gratefully removed his genetic material from the human gene pool that day, uh, taught them. And people will believe something fantastically stupid like that and reject the fact that God could send His Son to pull His people out of this earth. You tell me who the crazy one is. I really hope Louis Farrakhan does make contact with the mothership. Amen. Well, we'd be better off without him. But let me tell you something. People scoff at the second coming of Christ. They laugh. In fact, I'm not sure if Peter understood the term uniformitarianism when he wrote these words under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God, when he said, all things continue as they were from creation, but that is the chief linchpin. Uh, You pull that out, the keystone, if you look at an arch, the whole thing collapses of the timetable of evolution. Because everything has to continue as it was. Uh, You know what Peter's telling us? Uh, things didn't continue as they was. We live in a different world than that one was created in the water. It's a different place now. And this one is being held in store unto fire. And it's amazing that the most godless, God-hating people on this earth believe in global warming. I believe in global warming. This whole thing is going to burst into a huge fireball and disappear one day. It's going to be rather hot. And yet, if you read their books, that's what they say is going to happen on earth. It's going to become one huge desert and burn up everybody, every living thing on it. They just haven't gone far enough. 
You know, no matter how much you disbelieve in God in this book called the Bible, you're going to come back to agreeing with it one way or another. Even in your foolishness, in your stupidity. And I don't know about you, but that encourages me. Because we live in a world of scoffers. And yet the scoffers, with their own scoffing, end up agreeing with the Word of God. You know, the new evolution is a tractated evolution where it goes in big jumps. Where not just one little, uh, uh, well, what do they call that? Genetic misfit morphism changes you from a water breathing to an air breathing. But a whole bunch of these things happen all at the same time. I, I agree with that. God said never to fish. Amen. That's huge genetic change. And then God said again, there's a lion and a giraffe and all them wonderful animals and the creepy crawlers that make us all a little nervous. But let me tell you something. Look at verse 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Verse 14 sums it all up. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. You know, that's where our attention ought to be focused. Stop trying to fight the world. Get your attention focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. One more very quick one, and this is a dangerous one, but let's go to the book of Hebrews chapter 6. This is one of those passages that many people have rested to their own destruction. But we need to just look at this today. Look at verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. The writer is saying, listen... You can't spend your entire relationship with God trying to get saved. Because salvation is an event. It happens at a moment in time. It's time to take the salvation that God has given you and do something with it. Amen? And then he goes on to say in verse 4, For it is impossible for those who are once enlightened. If you're enlightened, are you saved? Well, read on and it will guarantee yes or no. And have tasted of the heavenly gift, only saved people. And were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, only saved people. And have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. It's talking about saved people. If they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance. Seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now it's an amazing thing here that the 
Orthodox and the Catholic Church and many other lesser faiths and Protestant faiths believe in the re-crucifixion of Jesus. Every time they get together, it's called Mass or, or the Eucharist. Uh, why do they do that? You see, they do that because they don't believe that his death on the cross forgives them for their sins now. So they have to crucify him afresh over and over and over again. But you know, there's a lot of people even in Bible-believing Baptist churches that do the same thing. You know what? God couldn't forgive me for what I did. And they get discouraged and they quit serving and they quit doing the things that God wants them to do because they believe the lie of the devil. Let me tell you something. If you have life, God has a place of service for you. If you are alive, God does not want you to sit there and roll over in your sin and say, I can't get out. I can't do anything. He died on the cross so you could. Amen. And he wants you to get up and he wants you to serve him. If you have any question, read the rest of the chapter. It says there's two kinds of ground, bad ground and good ground. It says, but we believe better things than you. We believe that you're on that good ground. Don't waste your life just trying to get saved every day. That's not salvation. That's not faith. That's nothing. That is no hope. But you see, we do have hope. Look at verse 18. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible, was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth to, into that within the veil. Whither the forerunner for us is entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, we all stumble in the Christian life. We fail. We sin. But I believe in a God that forgives. In a God that wants us to keep serving Him. Because you don't serve Him because of you. You serve Him because of Him. Amen? If all you're doing here today is trying to get your salvation, I want to challenge you. You don't have the salvation the Bible talks about. You are without hope. And there are times in all of our lives where we come up against something and, and we just feel like there's, there's no way around this. I was born this way. I, was, I, I just can't get over this. Whatever the whole world is against me. Let me tell you something. God is bigger. He is greater. And He is better. He is good. He's entered into the other side, proving that we can get there, and he's waiting for us. John chapter 14. You believe in God, believe also in me. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. John chapter 17, he prayed, I want them to be with me so they can see my glory. I tell you what, I want to see that glory. You know what that means? Better get up and keep serving. Amen? You see, we're going to find ourselves without hope. 
many different times in our life, many different things going on. But I want you to remember something. God is still on His throne. He is still in His holy temple. He is on His throne in heaven. He is beholding men. He is His eyelids try the, uh, the hearts of men. He, he is thinking and putting effort into everything we do. It's not a light thing with God to save a soul. It's not a light thing with God when we stand as Christians. He tries the righteous. Sometimes we get the idea that that judgment seat of God is going to be just a, uh, one of those little slap on the wrist kind of things and, and in we go and everything's going to be kumbaya forever. Uh, the Bible says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. It's a fearful thing to stand before a righteous God. But even there I have hope. Not because of me, but because of Him. Amen? You see, they're going to argue about the doctrines. They're going to deny the doctrines. But they can't change the doctrines. Because Christ is risen from the dead. And even in Christ shall we all be made alive. They can scoff at His coming. But if you believe in Christ today, you're saying... How close is it? I better live right. And when we do stumble, wait a minute, I don't need to go back and get saved again. That was settled eternally on the cross. Amen? It's time to get up and let God produce fruit again. We serve a good God. And there are going to be times when we say, Lord, I can't see any hope. Well, guess what? Open His Word, and there it will be. And all God's people said. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before You this morning. And Lord... Our prayer is for those first this morning that are saved, they know they're saved, and just struggling with life, that they would understand that there is hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even when it seemed like there was none, they still had the promises, they just didn't even realize it. Lord, we pray for those that may be here this morning without faith in God. Maybe they believe some of the foolishness and the contradictions of the world. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would have freedom to open their eyes to the truth of who you are and that they would surrender themselves to you and be saved even this day. Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit would have freedom to anoint our eyes with eyesalve and clothe us with that white raiment that we may be found with peace and without blemish and spot before your throne on that day. Lord, we ask 
that as we surrender ourselves as individuals, that you would bless us as a church that we may serve you till the trumpet call. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. The hymn of invitation is...